This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Winter the wild, wild west. Wicky Every wild, stroll into the yeah. <laughs> Take a stroll through the wild, wild west. I'm the slickest they is. I'm the quickest they is. Did <laughs> I say I'm the slick- slickest they is? You did. That was the first thing you it said. Was the, you said it one right before the other. <laughs> we watched Wild Wild West yep. starring Will Smith. Uh... <laughs> the classic beloved movie, Wild Wild West. <laughs> right. Let's take a listen to the trailer. Let's do it. Before there was a secret service, there was West. Jim West. West, Jim West, Desperado, Rough Rider. No, you don't want nada. None of this. It's gunning this, brother running this. West Taylor West. So remember the name. Now who you gonna call? Not the GB. Now who you gonna call? Ha 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 ha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Before we completely shit on this film, let uh-huh. me just at least say. It's a great fucking song. I had some choreo to this. I performed this in a middle school talent show. Oh, yeah? I don't think we won first place, but that's... <laughs> when, I, when I was 13, that song and that trailer got me crazy excited oh, yeah. for this movie. Fucking Cisco. Like, I really Stewie. wanted to go... <laughs> so ridiculous. Oh, my God. Okay, shall we unpack some of this yes. ridiculousness? Yeah. This movie swept the Razzies. Oh, it sure did. And each award was accepted in person by Robert Conrad, who had portrayed Jim West in the original series, and he accepted the awards to show his objections to how bad the movie right, was. Right. So, so, yeah, this was a television series from the 60s. Right. Did you ever, were you familiar with no, it at I all? I wasn't, no. See, so already, it's not like I went into this being like, this is a remake of the classic one. Right. It was yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. it was fucking Will Smith. He right. could do anything. But okay, so when I was reading about some of how this movie came to be, it Kind of makes a lot, a lot of sense in retrospect. Warner Brothers had originally announced the plans to make the movie in 1992. Mel Gibson was set to star as Jim West. Uh-huh. And Richard Donner, who had directed three episodes of the Wild Wild West TV series, was set to direct. There was a script. Donner, no Donner, shit. Donner, fucking Donner. But they're, like the script was originally written by Shane Black, who did like Predator and Lethal Weapon uh-huh. and stuff, like good movies like that. We've talked about him a bunch because he's doing the new Predator. Right, And he right. was in the original Predator. He right. wasn't writing that one back then. Yeah. He's an Interesting guy. That's crazy. Okay, so then Gibson and Donner dropped out because Mel Gibson went on to do Maverick from 94, if you recall. So it's like a different old (laughs) Westy kind of bullshit. But then after Mel Gibson dropped out, Tom Cruise was attached to star before dropping out to star in Mission Impossible in 96. So this original script was mostly like super serious and dialogue driven. It was just like an old school, like mystery Western. And then Mm. it was heavily rewritten to add more action and comedy. I read that entire editions like Kenneth Branagh's character in general, like it's kind of over the top (laughs) half manness. And then most of the jokes and action scenes and the entire third act involving that giant spider were all new without the original screenwriter's input. So then the original screenwriters, Wilson and Braddock, they tried to get their names taken off the film after seeing seeing the final product, and they've since refused to work with major studios because of that experience. Well, it does sound insane. Yeah. I know that there's a story surrounding this movie where a big element of this movie is a giant mechanical spider. Correct. And there's a big story where Kevin Smith was supposed to be making a Superman movie in the 90s. Right. And he was like working with this specific producer, and the producer kept insisting that a giant mechanical spider had to appear in the Superman movie. And the story, is, in short, is that Kevin Smith, like, 
refused to do it, winds up not making the movie, then goes and he's in the theater for Wild Wild West and sees that giant mechanical spider and is like, wait like, a minute. And then the first name of the producer was that guy and he was like, he got it done. You motherfucker. Yeah. Just the idea that somebody was like, I want to see a giant mechanical spider totally. in a movie. In any movie. I don't care what it is <laughs> or what the movie's about or right. why, but I, that's what I want to see. And honestly, like the mechanical spider isn't even, I, that's not even my biggest issue because like what I like <laughs> yeah. about this movie is kind of the, is the steampunkiness and right, like the, right. you know, the bits and the bobs the and the whatever. The alternate version of the 1800s right. where technology was like this. Exactly. So like, I don't, that doesn't bother me, but just to know that they only did it because they were like, well, Will Smith's in this, so it's obviously got to be, uh, it's got to be funny. Right, There's a right. lot of laughs. Barry Sonnenfeld directed this, yeah. and he had worked with Will Smith on Men in Black before right. this. And so that the way that that movie was a success, I can see them being like, well, that's the tone that we got to go strike Yeah, here. I mean, and Will Smith is good at being both funny but also serious. But right. this movie was, like, not serious at all. No. Like, even after post-production, Warner Brothers had already given up on the film and considered it, like, <laughs> the black sheep of the family. Oh, Here's the fucked up thing, though. Will Smith turned down playing Neo in The Matrix to star in this fucking movie oh my god and he was a fan of the wild wild west tv series so he was like no no but you know since then he said that that was the worst decision he's ever made in his career obviously i can't imagine what the matrix would have been like with him as the star and yet could you not like i could easily see kind of in the same way that he's you know he's like inadvertently being taken into the men in black world they right, would maybe right. make it more like that but, but he's also goofier right maybe because like I mean he hadn't really been like super serious because I think like enemy of the state and shit came like after yeah, this yeah, yeah. but like he's a fucking good ass actor it's just at that time he was still like Fresh, Fresh Prince, Prince yeah and, he's a comedian right so yeah he was super embarrassed about the fact that it earned like almost $50 million in its opening weekend. And years later, he apologized publicly to Robert Conrad, the original star of the series, oh, yeah. just saying that he was like, now that I'm older and more experienced, <laughs> I totally understand why you're pissed off and refused to make a cameo because mm. Conrad was initially approached to play Ulysses S. Grant. Sonnenfeld approached him, but he was like, fuck no, this script right. is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, that being said, bless Kenneth Branagh's heart because he, like, immersed himself in the American Civil War to bone up on his character. And I feel like he's the most, even just his accent or just his he manner. He so hard. He committed hard in this yeah. movie. <laughs> Before we get started, I, I wanted to mention a quick science tidbit. Okay. At one point in the movie, they're transporting nitroglycerin in, like, loose bottles on the back of a horse-drawn carriage. And Will Smith is like, this is not how you transport nitro. <laughs> Nitro is incredibly unstable and a strong shake can make it explode. And I actually read that people wanted to use Nitro in the building of the first transcontinental railroad, which is a plot point in the movie. But some of the crates of it were shipped to California and one of the crates exploded, Oof. destroying a Wells Fargo company office in San Francisco and killing 15 people. Oh, no. California then completely banned the transportation of nitroglycerin. So the people who wanted to use Nitro had to manufacture it on site. Now, Nitro, is that... It's an explosive, right? It's a, it's a very unstable explosive. Later on in the 1800s, Alfred Nobel combined it with clay to make the much more stable dynamite, which dynamite. I've discussed before on the right, show. Right, right, right. Okay. But, yeah, but before nitro, it was just some just, fucking loose ass. If you shook a bottle of it, it would explode. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's dangerous shit. <laughs> Final tidbit. Tim Curry, Johnny Depp, and Matthew McConaughey were all considered for the role of Artemis Gordon, who is Kevin Klein's character. So, okay. Sure. Yeah, Why, not? Why not? All right, all right, all right. <laughs> wild, wild, wild West. West. <laughs> so a big part of this movie is that like the South is 
stealing scientists. There's a oh, bunch yeah. of good scientists, and like they're stealing them so that they can make <laughs> big mechanical spiders and shit like right, that. Right, of course, I guess. as we learned. But so thinking about like how nations have been stealing scientists, I wanted to talk about this thing from World War II called Operation Paperclip. Hmm, never heard of it. So at the end of World War II, it was clear that tensions were rising between America and the Soviet Union, which were on the same side during right, that war. Right, right, right. Germany had many brilliant scientists, and so there was a race to find and steal the best German rocket scientists from Berlin in 1945. Find and steal or, like, you know, coax them to your side or straight up, like, you're going to do this. Uh, the Russians had a version of Operation Paperclip that was called Operation Osoyevkim, <laughs> where one night they recruited 2,000 German scientists at gunpoint. Oh, God. It was like recruited. a feeding frenzy <laughs> for both countries, and apparently we got the better deal. We wind, wound up finding more of them, as I'll explain in a second. Right. We apparently did not do it at gunpoint, at okay. least as far as we as we've been told have been told. <laughs> so Operation Paperclip, as I said, it was a huge attempt to recruit former Nazi scientists, and I really want to point out that many of them were leaders in the Nazi Party. Whoa! Okay, I didn't hadn't initially made that connection. I okay. was like, yes, German scientists, but right. like to think like <laughs> exactly. after all of the atrocities to then be like, but you guys got some great minds. Werner, Come on our side. Exactly. That's fucked up. Werner von Braun is a fascinating example of somebody who later claims to have regretted using Jewish slaves as workers in in the process of building right. incredibly dangerous rockets, basically feeling like he was in a situation where this is how scientific progress is done here, and I want to progress science. Right. And so I'm working within the situation that I'm in. So it, within the circumstances where he's having to use Jewish slaves for this, he's still like, sci oh man, that's a tough moral dilemma, isn't it? Yeah. And the stuff that we forgave after World War II so that we could have a technological edge over the Soviets is crazy. Ugh. I mean, Werner von Braun has to be the only Nazi to ever appear on Walt Disney's TV show in the 50s, right? What? Because in the was? 50s, he was there to explain rocket designs, like the Saturn V rocket, to America. <gasps> I didn't know. Like, you're talking to me like I'm supposed to know that. I <laughs> no, didn't know no, any of this. I know. It's, it's <laughs> fucking insane. What? And so we very much downplayed his Nazi roots. Oh, fuck. As he became a German scientist for America. Man, that just really exposes just like the opportunistic side of, of that kind of thing. Definitely. So getting back to the actual Operation Paperclip, right. there was a very important German research facility called Pienemund, which is where Werner von Braun and other key scientists had developed the V2 rocket that had bombarded London. Mm -hmm. In short, we got to Pienemund first, and we took thousands of German scientists with us, most notably von Braun, who actually gathered his team when it became clear that the Germans had lost, and they uh -huh. decided as a group which would be better, living in America or living in the Soviet Union. And they chose America right. and like all went to a spot that they thought would be likely to be found by Americans. Jesus Christ. Okay. So when the Soviets got to Pienemund, all that was left was rocket casings and discarded machinery. And amazingly, the Soviets' head scientist, who's a truly amazing person named Sergei Korolev, saw in these rocket casings some really brilliant designs, mm -hmm. which were actually von Braun's. Korolev was basically the v Soviets' Werner von Braun. Mm -hmm. And the success of Korolev's designs, which is putting Yuri Gagarin and Sputnik into space, right, right, the right. first ICBM largely came from what he observed at Panamund and learned from von Braun's designs. Jesus 
So we got the guy himself. They got the leftovers, but, but they still were able to figure out a lot. From and that. we all still benefited from the minds of Nazi scientists. Exactly. That is so, I mean, it's fascinating, but also like kind of sickening, but also just, you know, it's, it's real in the sense right. that, you know, when we're taught about World War II and like the rise and fall of the Third Reich and all of the stuff, mm-hmm. it's, you know, we're talking about chapters. We're not really right. looking at like the nuance of then after the conflict, what happened to all the people? Mm-hmm. You know, you think mm-hmm. you hear about straight up Nazi guards that like, you know, escaped to Argentina or like went right. around and that kind of shit. But I certainly was never taught about America then being like, well, now that that's over, like, come over. Like, they weren't charged with war crimes? We papered over their past. There was actually only one scientist that we took from Operation Paperclip that was ever tried for any issues that he had done as a Nazi. <sighs> and he was convicted of that. No other scientists from the Operation Paperclip were charged. Oh, America. Oh, America. Ay, oh, Chihuahua. <laughs> when it's in our benefit, we yeah. can overlook a lot. Right, so there's some bulletproof vests in this movie, right? Yeah, he like inv- it's, it's something in the beginning he sets up. He's like, it's a chain link thing, and oh, then it right. comes it's back at the end. Yeah, exactly. But I wanted to look into the history of bulletproof vests and mm. just like how that technology came to be. So in the old days, people used animal skins as barriers to attack. Mm. But of course, as weaponry advanced, they would add like wooden or metal shields. Uh So in the 1500s, Italian royalty experimented with the idea of bulletproof vests. They built body armor with layers of metal. So the hour... I'm sorry, what year did you say? The 1500s. Wow. So guns were new. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Because, you know, before it's like you're talking about like sword fights and shit, you know, and just being able to. Traditional armor, right? Right. Exactly. But then they're like, fuck, we've got these projectiles. Let's do something with that. So they built this armor with layers of metal. The outer layer was designed to absorb the bullet's impact, but the inner layer was added to stop further penetration. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it was largely ineffective against firearms. So then moving on 300 years to the 1800s, the Japanese developed soft body armor made from silk. Now, this proved to be effective, but also super expensive because of obviously how much silk was was required. Now, later, a priest from Chicago named Casimir Zeglin devised a way to weave a steel plate between four layers of silk. So it was an eighth of an inch thick and weighed about a half a pound. And he claimed that it could stop a 44 caliber bullet. And he even proved this when he volunteered to be shot in front of a live audience in Mm. New York City. So he was hit at only 10 paces and said that he felt only a tap. Yeah, right. Just a tap, but also well, 10 thing, paces. It's like... It's like that still like, seems it, pretty close. I mean, yeah, close, but I'm also wondering, it's like, does it gain more momentum if you're farther away? Like, how, I don't I think... Mean, I think it loses momentum the, over time because... Right? Because when they say point blank range is like more Mm -hmm. impact, more deadliness, right? Right. So uh, he says that he felt only a tap, but this bulletproof cloth, as it was called, became an overnight sensation. So Zeglin like left the priesthood to pursue his new business venture. Now, Uh he then contacted the White House and offered one to President McKinley in the hopes that it might spur interest. He was told by the White House that he could meet with the president in a month. And unfortunately, two weeks later, McKinley was shot and killed by an assassin's bullet that ripped through his abdomen. And Zeglin's vest would have easily stopped the 32 caliber bullet. No shit. M- McKinley was assassinated in 1901. It's just crazy to think that they're like, you can meet him in a month, but right. two weeks later, McKinley was assassinated, and he was like, but I could have helped you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after all of this happened, the U.S. military explored the use of soft body armor, and it was again shown to be effective against like low velocity bullets, but mm-hmm. not the new generation of handgun ammunition. Mm-hmm. And it was also way too hot and expensive because of the amount of silk required. Like it doesn't seem. Right. 
to make sense if you're like in battle or whatever, if you're like covered in however many layers of silk. Yeah. Well, the thing I love about the silk is like, right, because it'll stop the bullet from going through your body. But when it hits you, my God, your entire chest is going to be bruised. Totally. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's not like you're just like, I'm fine. I feel totally right. attacked. Like, you're like, it's a fucking <laughs> bullet, dude. Still crack some Break, ribs. Yeah, exactly. So then during World War II, the flak jacket was invented and this mm. was made from ballistic nylon. <laughs> I don't know okay. what the fuck makes nylon ballistic, but it was ballistic nylon. <laughs> and so it provided protection from ammunition fragments. And it was widely used because it at least like provided a modicum of protection. It sounded like it was kind of more mental than it was anything. Just like there's something there. But it was also super bulky and ineffective against most rifle and pistol fire, which clearly the technology was getting more advanced. Right. So then moving on to the 1960s, new fibers were discovered that made truly bullet resistant vests possible. And that's a good distinction to make is that it's bullet resistant, resistant. not bulletproof. Mm. You know, now in the early 1970s, this is where it gets more modern, like our modern understanding of Kevlar or yeah, whatever. Yeah, Kevlar, exactly. So DuPont created this Kevlar ballistic fabric. It was originally intended to replace steel belting and tires. So it was like oh. extremely strong. But then they added like waterproofing and additional layers of fabric so that the vests were more wearable and durable and like effective, efficient, mm -hmm. you know. So the National Institute of Justice tested versions of Kevlar vests for several years and found that the vest could stop the most common lead bullets, which were 38 specials and 22 long rifle bullets. Mm -hmm. So then this final phase of testing found it to ensure 95% probability of survival after being hit with a 38 caliber bullet at a velocity of 800 feet per second. And they were also able to find that the probability of requiring surgery after being hit by a projectile was found to be 10% or less. Oh. So, well, that's a pretty not? good reduction. So that's the 70s, right? So since then, obviously, they've become much more improved. Now, this is written out like Roman numeral 3A. So I don't know. A level 3A bulletproof vest weighs approximately five and a half pounds and can protect the wearer from almost all handgun rounds. According to the International Association of Chiefs of Police, bulletproof vests have saved over 3,000 officers' lives since 1987. Well, that's great. Big fucking deal. Yeah, I was thinking about like the differences in the kinds of bullets and how like mm -hmm. we may never be able to have a fully bulletproof vest yeah. for every type of bullet. Right. Like I was just reading this thing. Shocker. We live in America where recently there was a school shooting. Mm -hmm. I don't know when this episode's getting released. I'm sure. Hopefully it's not another one in the, the time we release Yeah. It. Hopefully you're thinking of the same one that we're talking about. Yeah. Florida, the parkland. I was hearing this thing about the difference between a handgun bullet entering a body versus an AR-15 bullet. It's unimaginable. And that the, what happens with a handgun bullet is when you look at the x-ray of the person's internal organs, or x-ray may not be the right word, but mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about. You see a direct line through an organ. Usually right. there's a couple of bullet fragments that they'll take, but they can sew the organ back together. Right. With an AR-15 bullet, the organ has exploded. It's exploded. There like, is no way to repair the organ. Right. It's and caused it, so much fucking damage right. with one bullet. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not about like how many bullets that it can fire even. Right. It's about what that one bullet can actually do to the inner, internal organs. And exactly. so this whole bulletproof vest conversation reminds me of how like, right, different bullets like, what the hell are we doing? Yeah. I mean, they're like before when the standard is trying to just resist any lead bullet, right, right? right? Like whatever was common at the time, but now the technology has gotten completely out of hand. Specifically to break through these right. things. To break, yeah, like the fucking like armor piercing bullets. Right. The know. route that a bullet takes through the body is very complicated and it, it splits and it does things that you don't expect it to and especially with the high velocity ones it can do things to your organs. That right. A bulletproof vest has to have the ability to both stop a bullet from penetrating, but it must also spread out its kinetic energy because that speaks right. to what you're talking about. Like, it, you know, you might still get some fucking broken ribs 
ribs right. with the with the force. Now, one solution might be borrowed from the abalone, which is a mollusk. Mm. And the mollusk's shell is made up of layers of microscopic rock-hard calcium tiles, which are held together on the top and the bottom by a sticky protein. But the sides are just butting up against one, one another. So basically, it's like if the shell takes a hard blow then it's tough enough to keep the projectile from getting through, but the tiles also have enough give to like slide back and forth, uh-huh. which absorb much of the impact by spreading it out to neighboring tiles. So researchers right. believe that if a vest were made using these same concepts, it could stop just about anything you threw at it. This makes Ooh. me think of, remember we were talking about whether it's like tiling or something with uh, this- Metal foam. Yeah, yeah. Also as like a metal foam being like this type of metal that has like a bunch of ba- basically bubbles in it and that it's able to collapse mm-hmm. and and- reduce the amount of pressure. If you were to make car bumpers out of this material and then you were to get into a car accident, the amount of force of the stop that would be transferred to you is Mm. seriously reduced because it collapses in a specific way. Moving on, spider silk is one of the strongest and most flexible materials in nature. It's not quite as strong as Kevlar, but it is 10 times more elastic. So it can bounce back and absorb the energy of a bullet much better. I mean, Spider-Man had that fucking shit on lockdown. (laughs) However, getting spider silk on a large scale is clearly not easy. So inventors are mixing spider DNA with goats. What? Goats, (laughs) who then secrete the web protein in their milk. So after they're milked, the protein is extracted and processed to create a fiber known as biosteel. What? So if you made a vest using both biosteel and Kevlar, you could have one very tough but very flexible bulletproof solution. Holy shit. Isn't that fucking dope? They're mixing spider DNA with With goats. goats? This seems like a bad idea. Fucking goats. But they're mixing everything with everything. I know. It it seems like a sci-fi movie or a horror movie at the start. But. It's like, like if you're gonna fucking GMO it, let's at yeah. least like get some better no, bulletproof. No, I think that's awesome. But because if then I'm just picturing like I don't know goats spinning silk. But what you're describing is like there's a protein that is in the milk exactly. that then you can derive a thing from. Right. It's how like like before we were talking about it's like pig human hybrids. Right, this is right, crazy. Right, it's like yeah. no, it's putting a fetus in the yeah, mother body. Then, what a, it's obviously more complicated than that. But I know like why you're thinking like spider <laughs> yeah. goats not comfortable. Yeah. Now, finally, there is liquid armor, and it is basically Kevlar that's coated in a non-toxic fluid made up of nanoparticles of silica. Interesting. When under low stress conditions, the nanoparticles are completely flexible, so the wearer can just move freely. Because, you know, like these bulletproof vests are kind of bulky. You can see when someone's wearing a vest. Right. But within a millisecond of receiving a high-impact blow, the silica in the immediate target zone would become rigid, preventing a further penetration. Mm. So it would not only protect against you know, normal bulletproof jacket kind of shit, but it would also protect against puncture wounds wounds from knives and shrapnel and explosions and uh-huh. that kind of shit. So I'm thinking like fucking armadillo style, like armadillos rolling around and suddenly it's just like, <laughs> yeah. you're like, you know, like, or a hedgehog. Puffer fish. Totally. Is that what they're called? Yeah, the, the blowfish. The blowfish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not Same puffer thing, fish. whatever, puffer. Because <laughs> then I got into looking at the fact that there's like, $265 bullet blocker backpacks that were introduced in 2007 that, oh, you know, no. it looks like a backpack, but it's, so it's like, Is that for oh, like kids in school? Yes, of course it is. Oh. For active school shooters. And then you can be like, oh, got my backpack. There's bulletproof notebooks that cost $145. So There's bulletproof up. denim jackets that cost $979. So it's like, I mean, clearly we need to address the fact that children shouldn't have to be worrying about protecting themselves from gunfire. Right. But like, is this the immediate solution is creating these like Kevlar backpacks and notebooks and fucking supply boxes and shit? To me, it just says something about the society you're living in if that's something that's required. Right. That's, you not, know. Not something good. 
guys, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. That thing that it says, not good. Right. <sighs> well, let's take it to a totally different place because <laughs> I want to talk about some crazy parties that were held at the White House. Oh, fuck yeah. Because this movie, it also shows like the White House for a second in the 1800s. It's like a very different place. A lot less security happening around the White House. Anybody just stroll on in. Andrew Jackson was kind of famous for holding insane parties at the White House, but none was crazier than his inauguration party. Jackson had lost to John Quincy Adams four years earlier. Mm -hmm. And after a really dirty and difficult political race... Jackson won in 1828 Mm -hmm. with a huge popular following. And his election represented like a big change for American politics. During the inaugural speech, cables holding the crowds back snapped and the president's team had to run him back inside the Capitol for his protection. Can you say that again? I'm sorry. The cable broke the who's back? The crowd. Like there were like cables, I guess, rather than ropes or something. Oh, like holding in Holding the people people back from the the steps that he was speaking from. So the cables broke. The people all like charged the stage. They rush the president back into the Capitol for his protection. But then he mounts his own horse and he rides it through the crowd to the White House. Oh, God. From the Capitol building to the White House. Andrew Jackson. At the time, the tradition on Inauguration Day was for the White House to be an open house. Anybody who could show up, shake the president's hand, maybe have some punch and dessert. Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) So because of the popular following that Jackson had, this open house got way out of hand. Apparently 21,000 people came and they breached the ropes guarding the White House. They made it onto the lawns and inside the building. Andrew Jackson apparently had to flee the house by leaving through a window to escape the mob. I mean, we've seen enough high school movies where, like, a house party gets out of hand. <laughs> it's literally in the White House. Right. Because That's cra- kind of crazy. I'm sorry to interrupt no, 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 you, please. but it's kind of crazy to think that at one point it was open house. Like, obviously, there's, like, there's always precedent for everything. First of all, not a fan of Andrew Jackson for a multitude of reasons, uh, as we know. But, <laughs> right. But that, I mean, I also didn't know that he was that... That people were like, fuck yeah, People were fuck yeah. I mean, uh, so this crowd drinking heavily, they destroyed the furniture in China. They ground cheese into the carpets with their boots. They eventually got most of the crowd out of the White House by promising them more free booze outside. So they're trying to fuck shit up. They, people, it was just a raucous ass party. Like, they, I don't think that they were really trying to so much as like there were so many people and everybody was drunk. Shit was getting destroyed. Right. There's a likelihood that this is a little exaggerated, right. probably by the opponents who wanted to say that Jackson and his supporters were pieces of shit. Right, right. Jackson was doing keg stands in the exactly. corner, man. It got nuts. Exactly. It, it doesn't sound like it was exaggerated by much, though. Right. And the open house tradition continued until 1885 when Glo- Grover Cleveland went for a parade instead. Uh-huh. Open house seems, I don't know if at any time that made sense, right? I, well, at the it just time, tells you how, how far we've come. In, in the early of- days, the presidency wasn't seen as like the thing that it's seen now. It right. was like a thing that somebody, it, it, the Secret Service didn't exist until like, was it after Lincoln? Yeah, but I mean, Secret Service and just security. It's like, you right, don't, right. it just doesn't make sense at any time. If you're like, well, I guess, I don't know. This was pre-fucking, what, what was Civil War, right? Like this, he was. This is before the Civil War. Yeah, this is so 1820s. of course. So I wonder if then, I mean, 
I don't know. I'm like <laughs> pretending to understand like the history of American presidency. The thing I don't understand is I think that the way that the prime minister in England is kind of seen as like not like the president, but like just like another dude who's right. serving this thing right. is kind of how the presidency was seen back then. Also, like we were so in our infancy that it was sort of like, who's this right. fucking bozo? <laughs> and I don't think that power had consolidated in the presidency like right. it is now and all and that kind of stuff. And the information, it's not like, you know, people were checking their fucking emails. It's right. like it actually right. took a lot for people to make it to Washington, D.C. Right, and then, you know, they just weren't that worried about somebody showing up with a gun and shooting the president. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's another story about Andrew Jackson, by the way, oh, where he received a 1,400-pound cheese wheel as a gift. Oof. And for years, it sat in the White House where they, like, didn't know what to do with this giant <laughs> wheel of cheese. Cheese wheel. Eventually, he decided to let the public into the East Room to eat the cheese. And just over three days, in 1837, the cheese was completely eaten by everybody. Right. <laughs> He's so like... Weird. He's like, you might remember me because of the Trail of Tears, but I also, Gave you know, the cheese wheel. The cheese wheel. <laughs> so this movie is like super fucking steampunky. Huh? Oh, very steampunky. And I wanted to look into like, what is steampunk? Where did this movement kind of yeah, get started? Like, yeah. I know what it is aesthetically and whatnot, but you all know, I know is the goggles with right, the leather, the goggles and the cogs look. and the wheels and the who's it's and, and what's the steam it's. power. Right. So. Certainly, depending where you look, you're going to find a variety of answers, interpretations and stuff of what steampunk means. But one thing I read that I think encapsulated it pretty well is that steampunk is modern technology, but powered by steam and set in the 1800s. So, for example, H.G. Wells' novel The Time Machine triggered a lot of illustrators and filmmakers and shit to invent visual languages that could illustrate the 21st century. Uh So where he, The Time Machine and H.G. Wells and stuff, might be regarded as part of the foundation of science fiction, he'd be listed as like a steampunk writer if he was a guy writing about shit today. Okay. So isn't that interesting to think about it as being like old school (laughs) sci-fi? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. You're emulating an earlier form of sci-fi if you're writing that today. Right. And it's like this non-time period... like a time that didn't exist, basically. Right, right. You're imagining what it would have been like. Now, the term steampunk was originated in the late 1980s in a letter to Locus Magazine, which is a sci-fi magazine, from science fiction author K.W. Jader. But while Jader coined the word, it was William Gibson and Bruce Sterling that brought the genre attention with the book The Difference Engine, which was published in 1992. This takes place in 1885, which is a, it's a sort of alternative industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. So the book centers around the struggle between the working class who fear technology technology and the upper class who are like an an enhanced elite. So again, this seems very just sci-fi based on everything that you and I have talked about on this show. I didn't realize that that term was so recent too. Oh yeah. 80s, 90s. I mean, when you just think about the whole, like the genre, like the subgenre and the sci-fi and the fantasy, and then especially the aesthetic and kind of the the clothing. Mm -hmm. Now, over the years, steampunk has evolved into more than, like I was saying, just the sci-fi and fantasy. It's like fashion, engineering, music, and for some, a whole fucking lifestyle. Now, the aesthetic has a sort of Victorian British Empire meets American Wild West as the backdrop, uh-huh. which does that make sense that if you totally think about it, fits. right? Yeah, yeah. Now, steampunk projects are a challenge of making something elegant out of random bits and bobs, like we were talking about. Mm-hmm. But like, you're like, oh, I've got all of these cogs and wheels. I can make something cool. You're like someone tinkering like, away. Artemis Gordon is a, in this movie is like big steampunky guy, Definitely. Right? I, I do feel like, yeah, the clothing aesthetic is that Victorian kind of like in a parlor mm-hmm. with the puffy shirt kind you're of You're wearing look. a corset, but you've also yeah. got a fucking like monocle or, and mm-hmm. then you've got like a, and a, top a kaleidoscope hat. and shit. Yeah, the kaleidoscope. The top, top hat. Oh my God. Like, I've got to tell you, if I had enough time and money, like <laughs> I would, would probably dress, way. yeah. I went to an Edwardian ball last year, downtown LA. 
It means that people are dressing Edwardian, which is like very Victorian, but also kind of toes the line between steampunky and whatever. So I saw a ton of steampunkers there. And yeah, aesthetically, it's fucking awesome. But, you know, what's interesting is reading about people who really incorporate this into their lifestyle. There's this debate among writers that this growing commercialism over the genre has diluted the punk aspect of it. Mm. Because, you know, steampunk, it's like, it's supposed to be like, you know, going against convention through either creativity or declaration of one's individuality and whatnot. But like, as with goths or anything else, it's like, or it can be just reduced to romantic Victoriana and right. goggles and fucking, you know. The- but the proper punkiness is like the the true feeling of the independent spirit of invention. Is right. that it? Exactly. You know, it's like before anything goes fucking mainstream. You're right. like, I liked yeah, the yeah, Ramones yeah. before they were cool. <laughs> That so kind the, of shit. The problem is, yeah. yeah. When pu- the same thing that happened to punk is happening to steampunk. Yeah, or like when punk loses its kind of dystopian or the social commentary and becomes more fucking Green Day. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. the works like The Difference Engine, The Diamond Age, there's another one, The Wind Up Girl. There are social mm. commentaries, like dystopia is the focus, but then some people are like, but I just like wearing corsets and cog and wheel <laughs> right, leggings. Right, right, right. <laughs> cog and wheel leggings. Yeah, which comes up on my Facebook often because they That's know I want thing. it. and I. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I've gone and like boots that have very steampunky. And I've been like, I've been it's like been in my cart and it's been like on the ad ad to order section for many that I'm like, do I am I? I don't know. Hopefully you'll still be there. I appreciated Will Smith's glasses. Remember his sunglasses were really fucking And I like I thought all of the weird steampunky tech. He had like a flower that shot out and punched a dude in the face. Oh, yeah. This kind of like the train. It was all cool to me. It's like this time when I'm watching it, I was like, oh, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Of course. But I did still enjoy right. looking at it. It's it's fun to look at like pre-Rube Goldberg, Rube yeah, Goldberg. Yeah, yeah, but exactly. That's the only good thing about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so in this movie, Ted Levine, Buffalo Bill. Oh, God. I'd fuck me so hard. <laughs> not in this movie. That's who that is. Buffalo Bill, guys. Yeah. And not the real Buffalo Bill. <laughs> Is there a real Buffalo Bill? Yes, he's buried in Colorado, where I'm from. He was like a like an old Wild West. Oh, performer. that Buffalo Bill. You know, not the, the, I thought you meant like, not a like real Silence guy. Of the Lambs that, is based on truth. That tells you like how far away we are <laughs> from know, the reality. From that, We're like, yeah, there's yeah. a real guy that took women's skin. Totally, and I know. Like, I when driving to Vegas, I pass a place called Buffalo Bills. It's a hotel. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Ted Levine, Buffalo Bill, he's got a, a disgusting trumpet look horn looking thing attached to his ear. Yeah, it's all leaky. It, well, yeah, because with like earwax, ear it's gross. He'd lost his ear, and so they, like, stapled this thing onto his head. I looked into early hearing aids. Mm -hmm. So ear trumpets, as they were known, were a real thing. (gasps) Were they real? Oh, yeah. The earliest forms were from the 13th century, using hollowed-out horns of animals like rams. Oh, oh my God. In the 18th century, the more modern ear trumpet was invented, made out of brass, with a funnel-shaped design. So it looked kind of like an old phonograph. And kind of how it looks in the movie, right? Yeah, except in the movie, it's like stapled onto his ear, which is not what people did. They would hold it up to their ear canal, and then they would listen to you. They'd be like, like, I I say something, and then you're responding, and I hold it up to my ear, and I listen as you respond. It's like if somebody's like, oh, I gotta read this thing, let me put on my reading glasses briefly to see just that thing. The equivalent of reading glasses. I don't just have an animal horn hanging out of my face. Exactly. All right. This was like the first ever real attempt to treat hearing loss at all. Mm -hmm. It didn't amplify the sound, but it collected it and funneled it directly into the ear canal. Right. 
So then, separately, the telephone is invented, and people start understanding how to use electricity. Like, Mm -hmm. all these technologies are coming about around the late 1800s. People with hearing loss quickly realized that they could hear a conversation better on a telephone than in person. Then Thomas Edison invented a carbon transmitter for the telephone, which amplified the electrical signal and increased the decibel level by about 15 decibels. Edison, man. This paved the way for the technology that would allow hearing aids to take ambient sound and amplify it. They started calling them radio ears for the deaf. Wow. Because, I mean, I honestly don't even know how hearing aids work, so that is crazy to think well, that it's not just an amplification of, you know, like using the horn thing. Right. Like you no, said. It, it, we talked about before that you can amplify sound by turning it into an electrical signal, yeah. amplifying the signal and then outputting it out of a speaker. Right. And that's basically what this was doing was taking the uh, the sounds that were around you, literally turning it into an electrical impulse, amplifying that and then outputting so that you can actually hear it. Mm -hmm. Wow. The carbon transmitter was eventually replaced by vacuum tube technology and then later modern silicon computer chips. The thing is, nowadays we get very nuanced with what kinds of sounds we want the hearing aids to amplify. Uh I remember with my grandfather, as he was losing his hearing, normal hearing aids didn't help because he had a special type of hearing loss where he couldn't hear vowels very well. Weird. Okay. Yeah. So it was something to that effect where it was like only certain types of sounds could he not hear. Right. So it was like, which I imagine is very disorienting. Right. So amplifying the, just the sound wouldn't work. But as I got older, I remember learning that he had got this new hearing aid technology that was actually able to isolate the vowel sounds and amplify those only. Unreal. So what we're able to do now is is make hearing aids that are designed for a person's specific type of hearing loss. Sure. Well, not and, just deafness. Well, and then even thinking about, oh my God, sometimes I get into these like YouTube holes of watching hours of like footage of people with cochlear implants hearing oh, yeah. for the first time. And yeah. it's amazing just from the level of being like, I've taken so much for granted, you right, know, like yeah. you've never heard anything. But to just think that now it's no longer that you have to like necessarily, oh, let me put my hearing aid on. Mm-hmm. It's in your ear. Right. And it's. Oh man, it's and I don't necessarily know how they work at all. They're, but each one works a little bit differently. Right. But like the basic mechanics is essentially the same as what it always was, at least from Thomas Edison's time on, where it amplifies an electrical signal and then turns it back into audio. What what I found really interesting, a lot of the reactions from that. I'm sorry, I'm going on this no, like no. tangent, but it's fascinating to me. Of like when their you know their implant is first t- turned on and they say. Oh, everybody sounds like robots. Oh, it's like the adjustment of just like even being able to hear what someone else is doing and also being able to identify like that sounds like a robot. I've never heard anything, but that sounds like <laughs> you sound like a robot. And then like adjusting to what you haven't mm-hmm. heard before. Like, and I then mean, understanding the nuance of the sounds that you're hearing. Totally. Yeah. And then hearing music for the first time. It's fucking insane. Like My if you've God. only had the vibration and then you hear it's nuts. Yeah. It's funny to me how simple the mechanism was, just yeah. being a funnel, right. <laughs> until a completely different technology was created for a whole other reason, the, te- the telephone. And people realized that they could use this fancy thing not just for talking long distances, but to help somebody that has a disability. Right. This is the kind of thing that people talk about when they talk about the singularity that's coming, mm-hmm. is you cannot predict how a certain technology in one field may be applied to and affect right. an entirely other field. Totally. And to me, this is a great example of that. The yeah. telephone technology led to healing, hearing aids. Now, in the old-timey days, did they have to dump out their earwax and weird goo? <laughs> I mean, or was that just a purely... I think that was the, a function of it being stapled to his head. <laughs> right. 
That was just some dramatic license. Yeah, that was okay. some, look at how gross this character is. Right. <laughs> all right, so there's all kinds of slang and words used in this movie that were not used in the Wild West. Did you notice that? Yeah, I noticed some slang that also was used in the Wild West that was not used in this movie, but that's understandable. (laughs) Right. So I just wanted to look into some of the slang from this time. Uh All right, let's go through this. (laughs) So there's Adam's Ale, which means water. Adam's Ale, because he's the first man. Okay. Adam's Ale. So this was the, everybody's only drinking ale. Right. And so. So you got to be like, Adam's Ale, simply water. I just want Adam's Ale. Pure. Addle-headed means dim-witted or stupid. I've heard that before. Yep, yep. Did you know where that came from, addle-headed? No. What does addle mean? I don't know what addle is. Let me see. Oh, make unable to think clearly or confuse. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You've made me confuse-headed. Aaron the lungs is a cowboy term for cussing. Okay. I'm just airing lungs. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got my air tights, which is my canned goods. Okay. Canned goods oh, are airtight. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I like this. If I'm dodging the law, if I'm evading the police, I'm among the willows. Oh, You're sure, just yeah. hiding? All right. Hiding in the fields. All right. If I have a really weighty argument that I want to make, uh-huh. I'm going to argue-fy. Sure. I am argue that you are full of baloney. Right. That sounds like it's Love the most made-up word. I think I might start using argufy. I would argufy yeah, that. Yeah, that's good All stuff. Right. Batch is to bachelor it. So this is for men to keep the house without a woman's help, right? You know, it's not a man cave. You're, you're batching it. You're here in the batch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is interesting. There's something called back seats, which is an obscure and modest position usually referring to politics. Okay. So I took the back seats on this. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that yeah, still I'm gets Swiss used, I'm Swiss on right? this. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm Swiss on this? Yeah. Like, I'm just not going to... I'm, I'm neutral. neutral. <laughs> a hangover is called barrel fever. Uh-huh. All right, I'm over a barrel, whiskey barrel. Yeah, I figure, good, but, yeah. All right. If you drink, drank too much of the barrel, the keg. Yeah. The keg fever. Pregnancy was referred to as bay window. Bay window? Yeah. B-A-E? Just B-A-Y. <laughs> Bay, no B A Y. Like a, there is such a thing as a bay window, but maybe I'm not sure quite where that. Like, what is a real bay window? Because there's an bay opening, window? a window yeah. that opens. I'm looking at bay window definition. Comes out a window built to project outward from an outside wall. I don't know. I guess a little so baby's gonna, in a bay window. And you're going to project a baby out of it. Yeah, sure. Whatever, man. I don't know. So the most important person in the group is called the biggest toad in the puddle. That's great. Love it. Yeah. Biggest, yeah. Big biggest, fish, small pond, sure. big fish, whatever. An idea, having an idea is having a bee in your bonnet, which I had always thought of having a bee in your bonnet was having basically like a stick up your ass, yeah. or you're upset or something. Or yeah, like a pet peeve kind of thing. But I could also understand if you're like, nah, I got something to say. I've got a bee in my oh, bonnet. I got yeah, a bee in my bonnet. That's a way better use of that term. <laughs> right. Well, I guess also a bee in your bonnet's like a thing that you don't want. Like yeah. you're like, oh my god, it's bothering me. Right. But if, yeah, if you're like, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. I got a real bee in my bonnet yeah. about this thing that I'm going to yeah. tell you about. Right? That's right. way better. Love it. Let's bring it back. A prostitute was called a calico queen. Okay. Calico is a cat. I'm wondering, I'm like, is that is that a pussy reference? Like, I'm oh, not sure. Oh, good thought. Calico queen. That seems, I think that's a way too modern right. Rep- yeah. interpretation Right. I don't know when pussy first came out, but it's like cat house. I yeah, feel like that's you know, the brothel. Like the yeah. I love this. A California widow is a woman that's been separated from her husband, but not divorced. She's just living that California life going out there. 
cat stick was a bat used by boys in a game. I don't know. Bat, baseball bat, cat stick. I mean, I don't know. Sure. Whatever, the whiffle stick. Fuck okay. it. This is interesting. So a term, uh, there's something called celestial, which is a term used in the Old West to refer to people of Chinese descent because the word derives from an old name for China, the Celestial Empire. Huh. I didn't know that they called China the Celestial Empire. That's a great name. It sounds really like I want to be a beautiful part of the and Celestial lovely. Empire. Yeah. It's like way less offensive than just being like. I feel like they're all like it's a religion based on the constellations somehow, or you know the cosmos. Times they are a changing. Coffin varnish whiskey. Okay. Love that. Yeah. Love that. And oh, this is my favorite. If you don't give a damn, you don't care a continental. Uh-huh. I don't care a continental <laughs> about that bullshit. So if they had used a few more of those, I in don't this care movie, about a Continental Congress because right? <laughs> we're going with this new constitution. Right. I don't care about a Continental Breakfast. Those croissants and bananas. <laughs> it's free with the stay. Yes, yeah, Holiday Inn. Did you have any favorite lines in this movie? Oh God, fucking fuck. Let's okay. Well. A breath of fresh ass. Oh my God! Yeah, I'm you sorry. mean a breath of fresh air? Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is when, like, you know, Jim West is getting busy, or he sees—is it when they first it's meet just, Selma Hayek? I it's think Selma Hayek's on the train, and they're both taken by her yeah. beauty. I, I need a breath of fresh ass. I'm sorry, a breast of fresh air. Ha. <laughs> and then didn't there was like a third one where he's like, "Oh yeah, let me just—I'm just gonna get some shut ass." I liked. Makes no sense. You and I were shitting all over that's. A man's head. Oh, yeah. He says it five times. In different ways. I forget. There's a scene and there's a guy's head that's part of the the main part of a contraption, right? And he's just like, as the scene's going on, he keeps saying in different, like, colorful ways, that's a man's head. That's a man's head. That's a man. Like, it just, and it lasts for so long. Well, because Artemis keeps being like, right, right. And the science of it is this. And he's being like, but that. Is He's a, a mild. Mild. <laughs> He's just Will Smithing all over the place. Ay, ay, ay. But uh, I, my biggest thing wasn't even a line, but the sequence where... Okay, let me set this up. The bad guy is unveiling his plan of how he's going to divide up the divide... The, he calls it the United Divided, by right, the way. Right, right, right. Not the Divided States of America. Yeah, the United Divided. The United Divided. divided. <laughs> so dumb. So he's like laying all this out, like this whole plan. He's like on a stage in front of like a bunch of Confederates and I don't know, some British people who sure. he's like, yeah, we'll give some land back to the colonies or whatever. And then Will Smith comes in in a belly dancing outfit. Oh God, I compartmentalized it. And belly dances for the main bad guy in front of everybody who's just sitting there and he's like right. being seduced by it and Will Smith is like making right. eyes at him. Oh, what a nice surprise. <laughs> and it's just like the scene Makes no sense. Right. We're like this guy that's got this, he's like a criminal mastermind is somehow so taken in by the hip twirling of a of a belly dancer. It's like in the if in the middle of like Hitler's like one of his major speeches, exactly. like a woman came in and he was like, oh, what's this? Oh. And the audience just sat there as he was, he like, was like, oh. I'll tell you about mine comp nice. in a minute, but yeah, first, exactly. let's listen. <laughs> it's insane. Terrible. I, yeah. So, and then of course, like there's just a bunch of 
cute little anachronisms because obviously this movie is all over the place. But like, right. the, you know, the movie's set in 1869 when the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. But on the train, Artemis is seen next to a cylinder phonograph with a horn for sound. And Edison didn't invent that phonograph until 1877 and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so when was the giant mechanical spider invented? Yeah, exactly. Because I know did what, Edison... it was after the 1860s. I know that. <laughs> I know. That's what's so funny about that is like diving into a movie like Wild Wild West. <laughs> yeah, to be like, what were the historical inaccuracies? Right, exactly. <laughs> but I still had fun. I mean, I love oh, yeah. fucking learning about steampunk and bulletproof vests and all that kind of old time. Like the Wild Wild West is cool. It's just this was far too winky for its own good. Let's remake it. Yeah. <laughs> East meets West. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> you can please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman and you can find us here next week doing the movie 7. Brutal. Brutal. Such a good movie. movie. Great movie. So good. See you then. Bye. Bye.